This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Happy Valentine's Day! Because of the holiday, February often brings thoughts of love and relationships to mind. This month, I'll be detailing cases of true love gone bad. In these stories, when one partner ends the relationship, the other just can't say goodbye. And instead, they obsess over the loss and seek revenge. I guess you could call these anti-Valentine's Day stories. But you know how we do it here at Once Upon a Crime. This week, I'll be sharing one of the craziest love stories I've ever come across. This tale of love gone wrong spanned decades beginning in 1959. But a twist in this story will make you scratch your head and say, what? Besides giving you all the fascinating details of this bizarre case, I'll try and add some insight into how in the world this case came to such an unexpected and frankly, unbelievable conclusion. In this episode of the series, Revenge Attacks, I'll share the story of Linda and Bert Pukash. Twenty-year-old Linda Riss was a woman who, as they say, could turn heads. She was a dark-haired beauty with wide, expressive eyes and a petite but shapely figure. She was said to resemble Elizabeth Taylor, but photos I've seen of her remind me more of the actress Natalie Wood. While Linda had many admirers, she was fairly naive when it came to men and dating. She grew up somewhat sheltered, even though her childhood had been unstable. Born February 23, 1937 in Queens, New York, Linda was only four when her parents split up, and that was when her father's presence in her life ended. Her mother, Bertha, worked full-time to provide for her daughter, which meant she was rarely present to care for her. At age five, Linda was sent to live with an aunt who raised her until the age of 12. It was then that Linda became ill with rheumatic fever. She and her aunt moved back with her mother, who was now living with Linda's grandmother. Linda's role models and caretakers had always been women, and almost no males were present in her life. It was perhaps because of this that she sought out male attention, although her naivety regarding men made her somewhat wary of them at the same time. After graduating from high school, Linda took a secretarial position to help pay the bills at the small walk-up apartment in the Bronx that she still shared with her mother, aunt, and grandmother. One day in 1957, when Linda was walking home from work, a pretty blue Cadillac pulled up beside her. The driver, 30-year-old Burton Burt Pukash, had seen the lovely young woman and felt compelled to speak to her. He asked Linda her name and made small talk for a couple of minutes while Linda glanced at her watch. She was not interested in this man who was clearly much older than she was, and as she would later state, whom she did not find attractive. But Burt Pukash was persistent, requesting her number several times, so she gave it to him to get him to leave her alone. Not a good start to this relationship. Bert immediately began calling Linda to ask her out on a date, but she had her grandmother tell the man that she wasn't home. After several unsuccessful attempts to speak to her, Bert sent her a large bouquet of roses. Linda's grandmother, for one, was very impressed with this man who was obviously smitten with her granddaughter. Linda finally accepted his invitation to dinner. 
He took her to a romantic cabaret for drinks and dinner, and Linda found that she and Bert had a lot more in common than she had imagined. They had both grown up in the Bronx, and both had parents who'd divorced, which was not as common in the 1930s and 40s as it would be later. Both had come from working-class families, but Bert's parents were very doting and protective, whereas Linda had been somewhat left to her own devices as a child. And while Linda had gone straight into the workforce after high school, Bert had been privileged enough to attend college. He had started at City College and then continued his education at Brooklyn Law School, earning a law degree. He built a successful career in New York as a negligence attorney. By the time he met Linda, Bert Pukash was earning almost $80,000 annually as a lawyer, or the equivalent of about $800,000 in today's dollars. Bert treated Linda like a princess. She never had much, and Bert had plenty of money with which to spoil her. On their second date, he even gave her a ride in his private plane. He took her to expensive restaurants and invited her on vacations. But Linda was an old-fashioned girl, and she rejected Bert's sexual advances, telling him she would only be physically intimate with the man after they were married. He assured her that he intended to make her his wife and spent as much time possible courting her, showing up at her doorstep in the morning to take her to breakfast before she went to work and being there at the end of the day to take her out to dinner. Often, he'd even arrive at her office as she was going to lunch and whisk her off to a spot nearby to spend an extra hour together. If all this sounds like it might be a bit much at the very beginning of a relationship, you'd be right. Not only was Bert monopolizing all of Linda's time by insisting that he loved her so much he couldn't bear to be away from her, but he was also becoming possessive and controlling. He was jealous of any male friend or acquaintance she had. The truth was he didn't trust Linda, and he believed she would cheat on him if given the chance, so he made sure to keep his eye on her at all times. And this, my friends, was incredibly ironic, given the fact that Bert Pukash was actually the one cheating. When Bert met Linda, he'd already been married for several years and had one child with his wife, Francine. Their daughter had been born with developmental disabilities, and Bert's wife was home caring for their child while he was off courting another woman. Truth be told, Francine Pukash would say that she'd known even before they were married that her husband had a wandering eye. She would also later say that she always knew Bert would be unfaithful to her, but she was willing to put up with his philandering in order to benefit from the financial security he provided. Linda had been dating Bert for almost a year when she finally discovered his deception. When she found out that the man she thought she was going to marry was already married and with a child to boot, she was devastated. She told Bert they were through. But Bert begged and pleaded with her not to leave him, promising on his life that he was getting a divorce. Linda told him that she would see him again when he presented the papers showing that he had ended his marriage, but not a moment before. In July 1958, Bert arrived with divorce papers to prove to Linda that he'd been telling her the truth. He urged her to begin planning their wedding and took her shopping for an engagement ring. He even took her to look at houses and also took her boat shopping. But Linda had a nagging suspicion that Bert wasn't being completely truthful. She wrote down the information from the divorce papers he'd shown her and shared this info with her mother, Bertha. Bertha then went to the courthouse to confirm that the filing was legitimate. It was not. Bert had phony papers typed up and made to look official. In the meantime, he'd continued to pressure Linda for sex and even accused her of sleeping with other men. To prove she was not doing so, she took him to her doctor's office to confirm she was still a virgin. The nerve. It appears that Bert thought if he could get Linda into bed, he could convince her that she belonged to him, 
and anyway, no other man would want to marry her. Once Linda found out that once again, Bert had lied through his teeth and tried to manipulate her, she broke things off with him for good. Bert Pukash was used to getting his way. He vowed that if he couldn't have Linda, he'd make sure no one else would want her. He began to formulate a plan to take out his revenge on Linda for her rejection. Linda Riss had been dating Bert Pukash for almost a year when she found out that he was married and broke things off with him. Bert became obsessed with winning Linda back, but when she refused him, he plotted his revenge. He began by calling her relentlessly and sending letters, flowers, and gifts to her home. When she refused to take his calls, he started contacting her friends, pleading with them to give Linda messages or convince her to see him. After two months of this harassment, Linda took the opportunity to leave the city when her friend invited her to come along on a month-long trip to Florida. While she was there, Linda reconnected with an old friend from New York named Larry Schwartz. Larry, age 23, was just a year younger than Linda and was the perfect antidote to her tumultuous year with Bert Pukash. Larry was calm and even-tempered, while Bert had been all drama. Larry and Linda dated each other the entire time she was in Florida, but the relationship came to a natural end when she returned to New York and Larry returned to his army base. Upon her return to New York, Bert intensified his campaign to win her back. He even had his father contact Linda's mother to try and convince her that he was seeking a divorce. But Bert's wife, Francine, found out about the affair and contacted Linda herself. Francine Pukash told Linda that she could do whatever she wanted with Bert, date him, sleep with him, she could care less. But she assured Linda that she would never agree to a divorce. Francine let Bert know this as well. She would never grant him a divorce and planned to stay in the marriage solely for the financial stability he provided for her and their child. Learning this, Linda told Bert to take a hike and never contact her again. She was moving on with her life and Bert would no longer have any place in it. What neither Linda nor Francie knew at this time was that Bert was facing the possible loss of his law license and an uncertain financial future. His law firm, Whites and Pukash, had been investigated and charged with illegal conduct for fee splitting. Fee splitting is a practice in which one attorney or law firm refers a case or a lead to another law firm in return for a percentage of any contingency fees it earns as a result of any judgments or settlements awarded in the case. At that time in New York, this practice was illegal. Linda's rejection of Bert was compounded by his legal troubles and may have left him feeling desperate. Or perhaps he was just a controlling and abusive asshole. I vote for the latter. In any case, by the winter of 1958, he was spiraling out of control, drinking heavily and calling Linda relentlessly. But now he also became threatening. Bert assured Linda that if he couldn't have her, then no one would. Bert knew some tough guys, men he'd grown up with in his Bronx neighborhood, and others he'd become acquainted with through his work as an attorney. He hired a couple of them to throw rocks through Linda's window. He thought this might scare her enough to compel her to come running back into his arms for protection. Which might have made sense, although not much, if he had not been the one threatening her. Linda called the police to report her ex-boyfriend's harassment and threats, but according to her account, when the police learned Pukash was an attorney, they told her there was nothing they could do. Linda's former beau, Larry Schwartz, had since returned to New York and was now working in the uniform rental business in Brooklyn. He and Linda began dating again, 
and before long, he'd asked her to marry him. Linda said yes, and they planned their wedding for the summer of 1959. Linda and Larry's engagement was announced on May 24th, and when Bert found out, he bought a gun. He waited across the street from Linda's apartment, ready to shoot her new fiancé. Luckily, he chickened out and didn't go through with this plan. But what he did have in mind was much, much worse. Larry and Linda's engagement party was held on June 14, 1959. While Linda was enjoying the party with Larry and her guests, she was called away to take a phone call. It was Bert Pukosh giving her one last chance to call off her engagement and return to him immediately if she knew it was good for her. How romantic. Ugh. Linda told him to take a long walk off a short pier and hung up. The next morning, Monday, June 15th, Linda's doorbell rang while she was getting ready for work. As her mother moved towards the door, Linda heard, Package for Miss Linda Riss, and told your mother she'd answer it, expecting it was another engagement gift being delivered. As she opened the door, Linda remembered seeing a flash of cardboard and then felt a burning sensation across her face. She thought hot water had been thrown at her, but inside the cardboard box, the man on the other side had concealed a glass jar filled with lye. Lye is a strong corrosive chemical often used in industrial strength cleaning products. When it comes into contact with the skin, it destroys living tissue, including skin, flesh, and eye corneas. Most of the lye struck Linda on the left side of her face and rendered her immediately blind in her left eye. Feeling her face burning, Linda ran to a sink and stuck her head under the faucet. An ambulance was called and she was rushed to the hospital. By the time they arrived just minutes later, Linda had passed out from the pain. The attack left Linda with burns on her eyes, across her scalp, and her cheekbone. She lost all her hair, and even after several surgeries, she would eventually go blind in her right eye as well. She immediately knew that Bert Pukosh was responsible for the attack. She told the police that just the night before, he'd threatened her, saying that if she didn't take him back, he'd make sure no one else wanted her. She didn't know what he meant in that moment, but now it was clear. He'd set out to have Linda permanently disfigured, so she'd never have another chance at love. Her fiancé, Larry, did stay by her side after the attack, but Linda worried that Bert would next seek revenge on Larry, so she gave him the option to back out of the engagement if he wanted to. Larry decided that would be for the best. The men in this story do not come off well. Linda received police protection while she was recovering in the hospital and later when she returned home. She remained hospitalized for three months and then moved back to her mother's. A policewoman was assigned to guard her 24-7 for the next several months. But Linda was determined that Bert Pukosh would not ruin her life. In December, she moved out of her family home and into her own apartment. She found a job and took up painting. Meanwhile, the investigation into Bert's involvement in the attack continued. Bert had not stopped trying to contact Linda. While she was in the hospital, he sent her flowers but didn't call or visit her there. After she moved into her own place, it was apparent that he was still keeping tabs on her. Bert's phone calls started up once again, and detectives were ready, encouraging Linda to answer these calls and keep him on the line. The calls were wiretapped, and investigators heard Bert repeatedly tell Linda that he loved her and wanted to marry her. They hoped he'd confess his involvement in the crime, but he never did. He insisted he had nothing to do with what had happened to her, 
and acted bewildered that she could think such a thing. He said that perhaps he was involved peripherally, since he'd made many dangerous enemies as a result of his work as an attorney. He speculated that one of these men may have done it to get back at him. He tried to convince Linda to meet him, hinting that he might have more information regarding the identity of her attacker. She declined. Investigators also had Bert's office phone wiretapped and recorded calls he was receiving from men demanding more money for, quote, the job that they had done for him. Eventually, these calls led police to three men who were implicated in the plot. Detectives posing as street toughs out to blackmail Pukash approached one of these men, Herd Harden. They told him they were shaking the attorney down for $10,000, and they'd cut him in for a portion of the money if he told them exactly what happened. He agreed, and while one officer secretly recorded this conversation, Harden admitted that he and the others had been paid by Pukash to disfigure his ex-girlfriend. It was Harden himself who'd thrown the lie at Linda. On October 30, 1959, after a four-month investigation, Bert Pukash was arrested in his law office. All four men were indicted on seven criminal counts, including maiming, assault, conspiracy, and burglary. The three men hired by Bert all signed confessions and were convicted. Pukash, however, denied everything and was granted bail. He posted the $100,000 and was released to await his trial. Knowledgeable in how the legal system worked, Pukash was able to delay the trial for months. It finally got underway in June of 1960. He was convicted in July 1961 and sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison. When asked for a statement at that time, Linda said, quote, I felt like his sentence wasn't long enough. I wanted him to rot in there. So, dear listeners, do you really think that Bert Pukash finally learned his lesson after being put behind bars? That would be a big fat no. He continued to write Linda love letters from prison and allegedly even attempted to take his life in order to prove that he'd rather die than live without her. Super creepy. Linda moved on with her life and even dated a little, but now almost completely blind, her life was far from easy. She wore wigs to cover her scarred head and dark glasses to conceal her burned eye sockets. She called herself lucky that the scars on her face had healed. She was still an attractive woman, smart, and somehow still possessed of a bubbly personality. One man she dated for a while declared his love for her and asked her to consider marrying him. To test his resolve, she arrived for their next date wearing clear lenses in her eyeglasses, as he'd never seen her disfigured eyes. It was the last time she heard from him. It was devastating, Linda later stated, adding, but you have to move on. And move on she did even traveling to Europe with friends and continuing to paint. Pukash asked his lawyer to reach out to Linda to see if she needed anything. He got a response from Linda saying, yeah, I need money. Bert wired her $4,000 and then began sending her regular $50 payments from prison. In March of 1974, after 14 years incarcerated in Attica prison, Bert Pukash was released. Linda, now 37, was placed once again under police protection. As a condition of his parole, he was not allowed to contact Linda in any way, or he risked being returned to prison. The attack on Linda made big news in New York at the time it happened, and upon Pukash's release from prison, the story was once again splashed across headlines. The convicted felon was even invited on a television news program to be interviewed. While the interview was being aired live, Pukash turned, looked into the camera, and spoke directly to Linda. Linda, I know you're out there, he said. I love you and I want to marry you. 
Believing that she would be alone forever, Linda had previously consulted a psychic to see what her future held. You've had such terrible things happen to you. I see a man. It's all because of him, the psychic told her. But I want you to know, he loves you desperately. Linda remembered this prediction as she watched Bert profess his undying love in front of News Channel 11's audience. It made her wonder if he truly did love her. Later, talking to her friends, she asked for their opinion of Bert's television appearance. Incredibly, they encouraged Linda to at least talk to him. They even coordinated a meeting so Linda would not have to face Pukash alone. She agreed to meet with him for dinner, and Linda showed up for this date wearing her clear eyeglass lenses. Bert spent the time they had together working to convince Linda that they were soulmates and should marry and spend the rest of their lives together. He said he'd take care of her and she'd never want for anything. He'd lost his license to practice law when he was convicted and his wife had divorced him, but he had been able to charge other inmates for his paralegal services while behind bars. He had invested his money in the stock market and in this way began rebuilding his fortune. So just eight months after Bert Pukash was released from prison for having Linda maimed in a revenge attack, Bert and Linda were married in November 1974. I know what you're thinking. What the hell? <laughs> Let's try and unpack this crazy, quote, love story. First, I'll tell you Bert's side. Then I'll give you Linda's explanation. And finally, I'll share some of my own insights. Of course, along the way, I'll give you more unbelievable details of this story. First of all, Bert and Linda's marriage was, I guess you could say, a success. They remained married until death do them part, with Linda parting first in 2013 at the age of 75. They were one of those couples that playfully bickered all the time, but were glued at the hip. Linda needed Bert's assistance to get around and do most of the errands, but both would attest that Linda was in charge, while Bert was her ever-faithful companion. Well, maybe faithful is the wrong word. Bert would cheat on Linda more than once. She was well aware of most of these discretions, and even remained married to him when he was charged with harassing and sexually abusing a woman named Evangeline Borgia. Pukash had been having an extramarital affair with Borgia for five years when she broke things off with him. He began hounding her and then threatening her like he had done with Linda 37 years earlier. Pukash even threatened to, quote, blind her like Linda. Ugh. He was eventually acquitted of the charges. Of course, the story of Bert and Linda's marriage was big news. Blinded bride-to-be weds attacker, the headlines read. The newly married couple used the publicity to their advantage, selling their story to news outlets and magazines. Photos cost extra, of course. Bert never fully took responsibility for Linda's attack, at first denying any involvement, and in later years saying it was, quote, an act of insanity brought on by the unsubstantiated charges leveled against him for the alleged illegal practices at his law firm. He would rail against the courts and New York's, quote, corrupt legal system whenever the crime against his wife came up in conversation. Pukash is most candid, although somewhat dismissive, in a 2008 interview with Amy Turner of the Sunday Times. He says he knew Linda loved him from the very first time they met and still loved him when they married. Regarding his part in the crime perpetrated against the woman he professed to love so deeply, Pukash says he is sorry, quote, every single day. I destroyed my life because I destroyed hers, he states. But the reporter wanted to know if he didn't feel like he owed his loyalty to Linda after all he'd put her through. 
He dismissed his behavior as trivial, saying, quote, I've cheated on Linda, but I wouldn't be the first man to cheat. He then added, no, I'm not proud of it. Some people drink, some do drugs. This is what I did. He did admit, however, that he believes Linda's decision to forgive him, if that's what you'd call it, was partially made for financial reasons. Quote, I can see how she acted for money, sure. Everything we do has money-motivated elements. She had confidence in my ability to provide for her, and I did, he states. Linda says several things factored into her decision to marry Pukash. Her belief as a Christian in the principle of forgiveness, the confirmation by the psychic that Bert truly loved her, and the fear she had that another woman would, quote, scoop him up. She also increasingly blamed the police for her attack and deflected responsibility away from Bert, complaining that if the police had listened to her when she reported being threatened and harassed, none of this would have happened. She was also angry that her lawsuit against the city citing negligent dereliction of duty was dismissed. There's no law. I'm blind and I didn't get a dime, she says bitterly. She also defended her husband's philandering and complained about all the media attention when charges were filed against him for threatening his mistress. Quite honestly, it's all bullshit, she told journalist Amy Turner. He was on the front page of every newspaper. He didn't kill anyone. He was having an affair. Let's face it, every man does this, she said. She called Miss Borgia a moron for putting up with Bert's behavior. He left the house for dinner at 7 p.m. and was home by 9.30. Two hours a day, she scoffs. You've got to treat a girl better than that, she said, completely missing the irony of her statement. Linda admitted that she never had a very high opinion of herself. She somewhat credited this to the fact that she wasn't given compliments or attention by her family. Without a father figure in her life, she said her self-esteem suffered in her formative years. Her mother and grandmother were focused on finding Linda a good husband, who would provide for her financially. Financial stability was prized above all in her family, as money was tight once Linda's father left. Linda was first drawn to Bert's obsessive attention towards her when they met, and was impressed by his wealth and material possessions. She made statements that suggested she thought he was too good for her. In her later years, she was still singing his praises, calling Pukash brilliant, and saying that she didn't honestly know what he was doing with her. In one of the most bewildering comments Linda made about her reconciliation with Pukash, she's asked if she ever shared with him the hurt and pain he caused her after the attack. She says she never did. Quote, Once I decided to marry him, that was something I'd never do, Linda explained. That would be so terribly unfair. End quote. But her behavior towards her husband is clearly passive-aggressive. In 2007, the Pukashes were paid a reported $50,000 for rights to their story, which was turned into a documentary titled Crazy Love. It's a fascinating glimpse into their marriage. Linda often seems impatient and exasperated with her husband. He, in turn, allows Linda to boss him around and talk down to him, while goading her into even more frustration through the use of jokes and pointed sarcasm. Linda died as the result of heart failure in 2013. Bert Pukash lived seven years longer than his wife, dying at the age of 93 in December of 2020. At the time of his death, his estate was worth a reported $15 million. Here's an ironic twist. At the end of his life, Pukash's caretaker was a 52-year-old woman named Sheila Frawley. After his death, Frawley claimed that she wasn't just his caregiver, but his girlfriend. Frawley was married at the time she was hired to care for Pukash, but said her husband had come out as gay, and he had known about, and gave his blessing for, her relationship with the aging millionaire. Friends of Bert Pukash accused Frawley of manipulating him with sex, 
to coerce him into changing his will, reportedly five different times, after he suffered a stroke and before his death. They noted in their court filing that on the day Pukash died, $150,000 was transferred out of his account and into an unknown savings account. The remainder of Pukash's accounts were frozen by a judge after a temporary restraining order was granted. A complaint against her states that Frawley, quote, isolated Pukash, mistreated him, manipulated him, and once she got what she wanted from him, she starved him to death, end quote. The court case is still pending. Did Bert Pukash experience some kind of karma at the end of his life? Did the player get played? It appears so. So what was going on in this relationship? Of course, we can't know what goes on in people's minds, why they make the decisions they make, nor should we. Humans are very complex, and no one can say what is right or wrong for one person versus another. Like I always say, you do you, boo, as long as you're not hurting anyone. But still, a case like this can't help but make us go, hmm, right? So I couldn't help but make an attempt to break it down. Bert Pukash is probably the simpler of the two to analyze. He was a person who, because of his money and his early life experiences of being coddled, defended, and protected by his parents, navigated life with a sense of entitlement. He was unapologetic about cheating on his wives or as part of his business practices. He never expressed true remorse for all the pain he caused Linda either. The truth is, Bert Pukash was responsible for a cruel and despicable act, but in the end, he got what he wanted. Linda's prospects for a romantic relationship dwindled after she was disfigured, and she remained a virgin until Bert married her. In Bert's mind, this was a victory and a vindication that Linda was his, quote, soulmate. Linda, on the other hand, is more difficult to figure. Most who hear her story believe she was in the relationship for the money. Linda doesn't deny that this was partially the reason she married Bert, saying, I'm not trying to deny that money played a part in my thinking. I was never interested in forming a union with someone who would not be a good provider. Has it made me happy? Sure. When we're not fighting, we're happy, end quote. Before you judge her, you must take into account that women in Linda's day and age had a lot less options as far as financial independence goes. Because her own mother struggled as a single parent and provider, I'm sure Linda received messages from her female role models telling her to marry well and find someone who could provide for her. In addition, Linda did express the opinion that Bert owed her for what he did and should provide for her financially for the rest of her life. Why she didn't just think to sue him for civil damages rather than marry him is a good question. She may have believed he'd never pay up, or would make it so difficult to collect that it wouldn't be worth it. Just the kind of guy you want to marry. But I digress. Linda never said she was in love with Bert. She spoke of him admiringly, and he clearly doted on her when he wasn't off with other women. Perhaps the cheating wasn't an issue for her because she didn't love him in that way. When asked if she wasn't hurt that Bert was disloyal, she answered, I don't see loyalty in that respect. In some ways, Linda was a very strong person. She certainly was a survivor, but she also suffered from very low self-esteem. She compared herself unfavorably to her husband, calling him talented and brilliant and herself ordinary. Perhaps the terrible crime he perpetrated against her and the media's attention to it made her feel special for the first time. If so, that's very sad. But what explains some things, like why in the world she'd ever want to reconnect with him after the attack? And can we say something about those friends of hers? The ones who thought she should give Bert a second chance? I mean, would you ever encourage one of your friends to reunite with someone who maimed and blinded them? Wow. These friends told Linda that because she was blind and alone, 
It would be safer for her to be taken care of by Bert. Safer. Again, wow. A frequent refrain I heard while researching this case was that Bert and Linda Pukosh must have been soulmates because only soulmates can go through something like this and stay together. I think this term is thrown around too casually without people really understanding what it means. In my opinion, after researching this concept, Linda and Bert certainly were not soulmates, but they may have been karmic soulmates. I'll explain what that means if you're not familiar with these terms. First of all, there are three types of soul connections that are most often referenced. Soulmates, twin flames, and karmics. All three of these terms refer to people who have a, quote, soul contract with each other, meaning they are somehow energetically connected to each other. The reality is we are all connected to one another energetically. It's just a result of existing in this universe. This is not woo-woo, really, but when you understand that everything is made up of energy and has an energetic vibration, then it kind of starts to make sense. Just trust me on this, even if you don't quite understand it. It's just physics, really, and believe me, I'm no scientist. Note, if this does feel a little bit too woo-woo for you in a true crime podcast, just wait a minute, I'm tying all this back to this case. You'll see, boo. Soulmates are those people you feel an instant connection to, and right away, it's like you've known each other forever. You've all had that experience. This is because a soulmate is a person whose energetic vibration is similar to yours. Soulmates are not always romantic partners, but they can be. They can also be a good friend or a family member, like a parent or a child. Relationships with your soulmates feel comfortable, easy, and stable. Definitely not the connection Bert and Linda had. Although later, they may have had an easier, more stable connection with one another after living together for so long. The second type of soul connection is known as a twin flame. Rather than just sharing a similar vibration with someone, a twin flame is said to be your divine counterpart. What this means is that the two of you were once part of one soul. Now, split into two physical bodies, you energetically seek each other out in order to become whole again. And if, and it's a big if, if you're lucky enough to meet your twin flame, you will feel an instant connection, like you've finally found home with this person. However, a twin flame connection, because you are so closely connected at the soul level, will be very intense and passionate on every level, mentally, physically, and spiritually. This is definitely a romantic connection only. It will be powerful, romantic, and sexually charged. You will both feel almost magnetically drawn to one another. You will also become aware of many synchronicities with your twin flame counterpart. Too many to be coincidences. For example, you'll discover similar experiences from childhood, shared talents, interests. You might even say words or phrases at the same time, know what each other's going to say or do before they say or do it, etc. Like soulmates, the purpose of a twin flame relationship is to bring growth and healing to each other. This counterpart will also help you fulfill your life purpose and assist you or inspire you to move to a higher spiritual level. Because you mirror each other in so many ways, you may discover areas of your life where you need to improve, change, accept, and or acknowledge to do this. This is not something that can occur in a safe and stable soulmate connection, at least not at this level and is definitely not found within a toxic or abusive relationship. A twin flame counterpart will never deliberately set out to hurt you. But a twin flame connection can be turbulent. This most often occurs when you connect with your twin flame before one or both of you has spiritually evolved to the level where you, one, can recognize and or accept them as your divine counterpart, and two, are ready and willing to accept the intense love and spiritual awakening they bring into your life. 
If one or both of you is not yet ready for this level of love and commitment, you'll most likely disconnect and walk away from your twin flame. In the end, of course, this will be experienced as a very painful loss. So, Bert and Linda were very likely not twin flames. Twin flames do not attempt to control one another or harm each other deliberately. If they did, it would be as if they're attempting to harm themselves. Nor would the intense love felt between twin flames allow them to become as abusive as Bert did towards Linda. But there's one other type of soul connection that possibly explains Bert and Linda Pukash's connection. Karmic soulmates or karmic connections, it's referred to both ways, also show up in a person's life with a soul agreement. But a karmic is someone who you have unresolved past karma with in another lifetime or this one. In other words, you have lessons to learn in order to evolve spiritually, but the universe can't get your attention in any other way than to bring a big giant roadblock or point of pain to make this happen. A karmic connection can be with a romantic partner, but your karmic can also be a family member, a friend, or even a coworker. These relationships are always uncomfortable, full of drama, sometimes emotionally painful, and always a big pain in the ass, if I may be so blunt. They do serve a purpose, however, if you're willing enough to learn something about yourself through this karmic connection. These people are put in your path to trigger you into becoming aware of unhealthy patterns in your life or habits and beliefs, etc., that keep you from evolving and living out your life's purpose. You're supposed to learn something from your connection with a karmic, as painful, annoying, or hurtful as a relationship may be. Once the lesson is learned, you're then well served to cut ties with this person or persons and move on with your life. Of these types of soul connections, Bert and Linda Pukash most closely resemble karmic soulmates. From the start, Bert's attentions towards Linda were controlling, manipulative, obsessive, and toxic. Rather than bringing out the best in her, Bert tore down Linda's self-esteem and her self-image suffered. When she finally rejected him completely after finding out about his deception, he tried to destroy her. Finally free of Bert's toxic influence once he was sent to prison, Linda did remake herself and seemed to do well on her own, working, traveling, and enjoying time with friends and family. But once he was allowed to contact her from prison, which should have been considered a violation and added more time to his sentence, by the way, she was back under Bert's karmic influence once again. Ultimately, he was able to worm his way back into her life and resume his control over her. But rather than seeing Linda as naive and easily manipulated, I see her as a very strong woman who somehow managed to make the relationship work for her. She said in their almost 40 years of marriage that she, quote, ruled the roost, and in some ways she did. She called the shots as far as what happened in the home, and Bert waited on her hand and foot and paid the bills. For this, she was willing to ignore his infidelity and forgive his past abuse. Linda didn't know that Bert was a karmic soulmate who she should have cut ties with after he showed his true colors, and she learned that she could be happy without him. Perhaps she could have done so if she'd had a chance to build her self-esteem on her own merit, without the pervasive messages she received from friends, family, and Bert himself, that she needed a man to provide and care for her. Maybe she would have realized that she was strong and resilient enough to stand on her own. I think she would have done just fine if given the chance. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Let us know how you like these stories by reaching out to us on social media. Get all our social media links on our website at truecrimepodcast.com. While you're there, you can also check out our events page. 
I'm very excited to announce that I'll be appearing at both CrimeCon events this year. Once Upon a Crime will be featured on Podcast Row at CrimeCon in Las Vegas on April 29th through May 1st, and in London at CrimeCon UK on June 10th and 11th. Get discount tickets for both events by using my discount code ONCEUPON22 when you register at CrimeCon.com. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My production and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and copy editing was done by Crystal Jernan. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be good to one another.